Today, Pastor Javen will continue the series called Exodus from Exile, exploring the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. This morning, we'll look at how the joy of the Lord is our strength. And not only do we get to carry that joy, we get to spread that joy wherever we go. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. So much. Am I happy in here today? I'm happy. Am I happy? Hey, hey, we're happy. You know, uh, every year there's these different organizations that put out what they call happiness reports. Um, uh, the Gallup does one. They do one that's called the World Happiness Report. Um, the Wallet Hub does one. They, they do a couple. They do one for the happiest cities in America and the happiest states across America. Uh, for the happiest cities across America, they measure happiness over 182 of the nation's largest cities. 182 of the nation's largest cities. This is what they say on their website. They say, researchers have studied the science of happiness. Aren't you, aren't you glad for those researchers today? We've got people that studying the science of happiness. I'm so happy about that. And they found that its key ingredients include a positive mental state, a healthy body, strong social connections, job satisfaction, and financial well-being. Of course, finances will play a part of that, but, but they don't, they, it can't play everything. As we know, money can't buy happiness. You know, it can't buy the fullness of joy, the fullness of happiness. If that were the case, America being one of the richest nations in the world, if you look at the World Happiness Report, according to Gallup and their research, America last year was 16th out of all the nations. And this year, we rose a spot to 15th. So congratulations, America, pat on our back. We're a little bit happy than we were last year. So that's awesome. If you're wondering what the happiest nation is, that's Finland. Finland is, don't move there, but that, because we don't want you to go anywhere, but that's the happiest nation. When they studied all the, over 30 different uh, factors in, in uh, looking at happiness in the cities across America, these 182 cities, Colombia ranked 98 out of 182 cities. So we're somewhere close to the middle of the pack in our happiness, right? So uh, now, if you look at the states, these reports say that South Carolina in the last year was the 33rd happiest state. So we're somewhere below the middle line, right, in states. And we wonder what in the world makes us such sad people. Now you look at it and you're like, why are we, why are we not like the happier people? Why do we have so many sad people that bring our happy level down? Well, I consider this a great opportunity and we should consider this a great opportunity as well. Based off of what we read in our opening text this morning from David in, in, in the Psalms that, that in the presence of God is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That we have that in God and we can carry that with us in our life. That as David's son Solomon said, Solomon wrote these words. He said, the the hopes of the godly, the hopes of the godly result in happiness. Or the hopes of the godly result in joy. So as you are in Christ and you're in relationship with the Father, the hopes that come with that relationship, those hopes result in your joy. Those hopes bring you happiness. As the angel declared when Jesus was born and he spoke out over the shepherds, he said, today I bring you good news of what great joy because our Savior had been born. Jesus Christ had came into this earth and joy came fully through Jesus Christ. So the opportunity, the great opportunity we have is we have an opportunity to not just walk in the joy of the Lord, 
But we have an opportunity to carry that joy with us and to share that joy with everybody that we get to come around. It's a great opportunity. We are in week six of this series that we've been in called Exodus from Exile. We've got one more week to go and hopefully you're saying, oh man, instead of yes, glad that it's only one more week. Uh, I hope that you've been encouraged and you've gotten something out of this study. We got one more week. The next week after that is Easter. Easter is right around the corner. So we encourage you guys be inviting, get people here. We got invite cards in the lobby and because the egg fest isn't happening today, we got a lot more invite cards that we got to pass out. So grab those things, take them to friends, give them out and invite them to come with you. The week leading up to Easter, we want to invite you uh, every weekday, Monday through Friday, between 11 and two, we're going to have the auditorium open worship music on. We invite you to come if you have a lunch hour during that time or you're free during that time, come and spend some time just praying over our services for Easter weekend that God will move in people's lives and and God will work in a powerful way. That Thursday, uh, which is called Monday Thursday, it's not Monday Thursday, right? It's Monday Thursday, which is a Monday comes from a Latin word, which just means command. It reminds us of the last supper that Jesus had in the new command that he gave his disciples to love one another. But we're going to open the sanctuary that Thursday evening from 6 to 10 p.m. We're inviting you to bring your family to come. We'll have communion set up in the lobby. Your family can grab communion. You can come in together, pray together as a family, have communion together as a family. If you wonder how do I lead communion, we have everything online that you can use to follow that and guide that, okay? So just want to make sure I get that out there, all right? But today we are going into this way. We're looking at the Israelites going back into Judah. And we're saying, what can we learn if we're coming out of a life that we were once captive to sin? What can we learn from these guys? And as we go into Nehemiah chapter eight today, we're going to see the root of Israel's joy. And the root of Israel's joy is the same root for us today. It is the root of our joy. We're going to see it. Nehemiah chapter eight is where we're going to jump into. So if you got a Bible, you can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter eight. We're going to look at that. We're going to start in verse 1. In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose. Again, we see them gathering together with one mind, one goal, one purpose. I love that. At the square, just inside the water gate, they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October the 8th, Ezra, the priest, brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. So they wanted everybody who had an ability to comprehend, to be there, to be together, to hear the law of God, the word of God being read. He faced the square just inside the water gate from the early early morning until noon. Early morning until noon. Right? When Jeff gives me this microphone every week, he says, you got enough juice to go several hours. And I tell him, I don't think I'm going to use it for that long. I got some, I'm not going to name names, but I got some people say, why do you, why you go over your limit? I tell him, I don't have a limit. What you talking about? I don't have a limit. Just be glad I'm not going from early morning to noon, right? This is what Ezra did. So he says, he said, I lost my place. So he, uh, Read aloud to everyone so that could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah. To his left stood Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem. 
Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. We've got joy today, right? When they saw him open the book, listen, when they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. We're going to talk about that respect in just a minute. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, amen, amen. In other words, they're coming in agreement. So be it. Let it be. As they lifted their hands, they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then the Levites, some of those guys that I just mentioned in that name, some of those guys went out. All right. And then they instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. We'll explain more in just a minute why they wept. And Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad. Listen to what he says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites too quieted the people telling him, hush, shh, don't weep. For this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food, and to celebrate with what? With great joy. Because they had heard God's words and understood them. They heard God's words and they understood them and they rejoiced. Now just to understand our timeline of where we are with Nehemiah and where the timeline for Nehemiah and these guys... They are about a week removed from the end of Nehemiah, what we see happening in Nehemiah chapter 6, the end of Nehemiah 6. The temple has been put in place. The wall has been built and and it's surrounding the city. This is the first time in just somewhere over 140 years that the nation has their temple and they have the wall surrounding them. And throughout their time of building, throughout their time of doing, uh, doing what they, God had brought them back to do, we see, we've seen over these several weeks, the people would stop they would make it a priority to stop and to, to, to look at the word of God and to worship God. And there's a significance with that because the people of God are called and created together. The people of God are to be a people who gather. We have seen it from the very beginning. God created people to be together, to together with one another. We saw them gather as families. We saw them when God rescued them out of the nation of Egypt, that they would gather around Mount Sinai. We saw that once the tent of meeting was established, they would gather at the tent of meeting. When the temple was built, they would gather at the temple. Even when they went into exile, Daniel and those, when they needed to, they would gather together to pray over situations. As they're coming back into the, to uh, Jerusalem and to their homes, we are seeing them gather together again. They gathered around an altar. They gathered together at the temple. We see them as they continue to go through in their journey. They gather at the synagogue. They gather the temple. When Jesus comes and Jesus begins to proclaim the truth of who he is and in relationship to the Father and the truth of the Father, we see them gather around Jesus to listen to Jesus and learn from Jesus. We see that when Jesus leaves, he tells his disciples and all those who had been following him to go and to gather in 
in a room and to spend time praying, waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit. So they gathered waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. After the promise came and the early church was born, they continued to gather, scripture tells us, in the temple. But they also gathered together in their homes talking and learning and growing together. The church, the body of God, God's people are a people who gather. It is in our DNA to be a people who gather around the word of God and who gather together to worship God. It's in our DNA. That's, that, that's what we've been called to do. And as we look through Nehemiah chapter eight, we see them gathered together around the word of God. And then not only are they gathered together around the reading of the word of God and the law of God, then leaders go out amongst them and they get together in smaller sections and they talk about the law. They break down the law together, make sure everybody's understanding the law. It's applying, it's that application. How do I get, what do I get from this? How does this work for me? How does this change my life? So basically we are seeing what takes place in the church right here in Nehemiah chapter eight. The the methods of how this is done, the methods of gathering together for the word of God and, and discipling and breaking down the word of God, the methods throughout the years for that have changed, but the mission of it has always been the same. This is why the church does what the church does, because this is what the church is called to do. We are a people who gather around the word of God and a people who gather to worship God. And our desire to worship God grows the more we understand the truth of the word of God. And today for us, we have the opportunity. When when Jesus sent that promise of the Holy Spirit, when God sent that promise of the Holy Spirit, We have the opportunity to be enlightened and illuminated by the Holy Spirit to have an understanding of this word. And we have that hope in him and that desire in him. We need to understand the weight and the power of the word of God. The word of God is a powerful force in our life and for us in our life. This this book, this ancient manuscript that we have, right? This is just one copy of it. This word, this ancient manuscript is divided up into what you probably know. You, you know, I know two sections, an Old Testament and a New Testament, also known as an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. In that first half, that Old Covenant, it was, it's the story, it's the reminder, it's the account of the Old Covenant, the promise that God made with a nation, with Israel, and the promise that would come through that nation. And so as we read the Old Testament, we are reading what's happening up, leading up to that promise to be revealed. We are watching the people of God in Israel journey along that, along the way of that promise, often losing their way as we've seen, but coming back to God and coming back to the promises of God. And then when we get in the New Testament, the new covenant. We're reading about the new promise that comes through the promise that came from the old promise. Are you following me? Jesus Christ was the promise. And when he came and he came to this earth and he walked this earth and he gave his life, he gave us a new promise and he gave a new covenant. And that covenant wasn't just a, was not just a covenant to a nation. It was a covenant to the world. 
And he's given us a promise. And through that promise, the church was born. And the church carries that promise and carries that gospel with us wherever we go. This this text is a powerful text. We cannot deny the power of the word of God. Are Are there things in this text that are hard to understand? Yes. Are there things in this text that when we read it, we wonder why did it happen that way? Yes. Do those things negate the value and the validity of the inspired truth of the word of God? No, they don't. Archaeology has proved over and over again that the word of God is historically correct. Science has shown over and over that the science world and the word of God and the faith world can live in harmony with one another. The word has been proven to be prophetically accurate. It has survived countless of attacks. It's been one of the most banned and debated books across the globe, but it still remains to be one of the most read, one of the most translated, and as they like to put on the shelves at bookstores, the best-selling book ever. And do we understand that people gave their life for you to have this word? They literally, not just the people that you read about in the scripture, there are people that gave their life so that we could have a copy of that word of God, so that that word would go to a printing press and the word of God would not just stay chained to a pulpit. So only certain religious leaders could read it and manipulate it and tell people what it said. They gave their life to make sure it went to a printing press so that people like you and me could have that word and read it and see the truth of God for ourselves. It's one of the most thematically unified ancient manuscripts ever written. In totality, it's written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, and it tells one unified theme, one unified story. It's about Jesus Christ. And what he came to do for us. I, I saw a clip of a, a pastor. I'm not sure who the pastor was. I'd never, I'd never seen him or heard him before. Um, and he, uh, the clip was shared by someone. Uh, and they used the hashtags of deconstruction, deconstructing. You know, that's a thing now. People want to deconstruct faith. They want to deconstruct Christianity. But the, the speaker was saying things. He was saying about the word of God. And he was saying that when the people that we read about in the word of God, they did not have what we call the Bible. And that is true. Elijah didn't have a Bible. The Bible is about what happened through Elijah's life, right? We get to see that. The people in the New Testament even, they didn't have the Bible. They had the law, but they didn't have the Bible. So God spoke to these people through his words to these people. And the point that he was making was that he was saying that if you think that the only way God can speak to you is through his word, don't think that the only way God can speak to you is through his word. God can speak to you just like he spoke to these people. I don't disagree with that. God can speak to us. But here's the thing. If what God is saying to you and what you're declaring or what anybody declares that God is saying to you and that it's God's word, God's word, it better not contradict this word. And the story of what he's, we've seen him lay out through the promise that he made through the nation and the promise that he gave through Jesus Christ in his early church. Because if it contradicts that word, it's not the word of God. So we have to understand that and we have to know that. But we cannot take for granted the power of the word of God. It's not just a story in a book. It's an adventure experienced by people. 
And it's an adventure that we have been invited into and that we get to experience together as well. As we look in Nehemiah, a part of that great adventure being told, we are seeing the people of God gathering around the word of God and being impacted by what they hear. Why? Because what they're hearing is pointing to who God is. It's pointing out who they are and it's pointing out how they are supposed to relate to one another and relate to God. In Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 5, it tells us that when the people saw Ezra open the book, they stood. Why? Because there was a great respect for the law of God and the word of God. At least a respect enough to stand in it and to stand for it. And that's what they're standing for. They're not standing for Ezra. They're standing for the word of God. God has servants of God. There are people of God who are servants of God, but the people of God, the servants of God are not respected more than the word of God. And so they stand out of respect for it. But as they hear the reading of the law and the word of God, they begin to realize that they weren't living in the word of God and living for the word of God and walking in the word of God. And we need to understand that too. It's one thing to stand in and to stand up for the word of God. It's another thing to walk in the word of God and walk in living for the word of God. And that's what God wants us to do. And see the word of God, it shows us our worth and it shows us our value, but sometimes the word of God will humble us because it will point things out to us that need to change in our lives. And as we, as we go through this passage of scripture, we see the people hear the word of God. And as they begin to understand more and more what they're hearing and what's being said, there is an emotional reaction that takes place in their life because Nehemiah and the Levites have to continually tell them, don't mourn, don't weep, don't stay in that place. So there's an emotional conviction that's taking place because before the word of God changes you, it reveals truth to you. And sometimes truth hurts, but it's necessary. And once you know who God is, and once you see who you are, and once you see the things in your life that God is leading you to change, then you can begin to make the changes and seek the forgiveness of God and begin to walk in his grace and walk in his mercy and walk in the joy that comes with that. The people are mourning, the people are weeping because they are experiencing conviction. And conviction is not a bad thing. We need to know that. We talked about last week about how sometimes we need to confront sin in our life. Conviction is not a bad thing. Jesus told us, he told his disciples, he said, my Holy Spirit will come. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of their sin. So conviction is not a bad thing. Conviction is a good thing because it brings about change. But the thing we need to remember, don't forget, everything that God's created, everything that God's established, the enemy wants to counterfeit. The counterfeit of conviction is condemnation. Paul wrote to the Romans and he told them, he said, and and we're going to dive into Romans chapter 8, that chapter in a few weeks after Easter, and and it's a powerful text. But in that passage, he's talking about the power of sin, but he's talking also about the power of what God has done for us. And he reminds them and he tells them, look, there is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Paul knew that he, I'm, I'm sure he knew 
just like we know, when we read the words of John in John chapter three, Jesus had a conversation with a Pharisee. And he had that conversation. We mentioned it last week where he gave him one of the most famous verses ever. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You know that verse? And the very next verse and the very ne- is the very next statement that he told that Pharisee. He told him, he said, man, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But I came to save the world. He's saying, I came to give the world an opportunity to realize what sin is doing to them and to experience the life that God wants to give them. But if you keep reading and you keep listening to the conversation, it's like, you know, we have that opportunity to kind of eavesdrop to the conversation. If you keep listening to that conversation, Jesus is having with the Pharisee. He goes on to tell him, I'm trying to rescue people from the judgment that will come for those who ignore what I've done and do not accept the relationship that God wants to give them through me, who don't want to accept the light, who choose to continue to walk in darkness because there will be that. But we don't have to fear that. We don't have to worry about that condemnation because Jesus came first not to condemn. He came to bring life and he came to bring life everlasting. Conviction points to a specific thing in our life that needs to change. And then when we begin to see that thing in our life that needs to change, we begin, and we begin to understand who God is. We begin to realize that God says, yes, you, you've got that in your life that, you, that needs to change. But here's the good news. I've already made a pardon for that through Jesus Christ. Accept the pardon through him. Begin to walk in victory through him from that. You don't have to stay in the sin. The conviction leads you to change. Here's what condemnation does. Condemnation points to that specific thing. And it says that specific thing is not just something that you did. It's who you are. And so there's two different ways that I see often that people take this and they take the condemnation. One of those is they say, well, if that's who I am, if I didn't just do something bad, then I'm a bad person. If I didn't just have a moment of, uh, where I failed, I am a failure. If that's who I am, and that's the condemnation, that if that's what I receive from hearing about God, I don't want to have anything to do with God because I don't want to have anything to do with condemnation. Or I don't, I don't want to be condemned. That's not what God's trying to do. But the enemy counterfeits. And that's what the enemy wants you to think. Another thing is, they say, well, if that's not just what I did, that's who I am. Well, didn't God create me? And didn't God make me like this? Well, if God made me this way, then he must want me to be this way. But we forget, yes, we are created in the image of God, but God, but the enemy counterfeited that image as well with a sinful nature. And so that sinful nature is what we're born into And God is saying, look, I don't want to leave you condemned in that nature. I'm offering you conviction to understand and see what that nature is doing to you so that you will change and not stay that person. I've created you for something even greater than what you think you are. Conviction is not a bad thing. So they're hearing the word of God. They're hearing the law of God and they're being convicted. And then they begin to experience and feel what the prophets before them experience. But see, the law of God, the thing about the law of God is 
what we see through the New Testament, what Paul teaches in the New Testament is that the law is necessary to understand the gospel. Because we get to live on a different, from a different perspective than what the people in Nehemiah and Ezra's day were living under. We live from the perspective on the other side of the cross. The law gives us the bad news of who we are. Because there's certain things we can't, we can't live up to. No person was able to completely fulfill the law of God. But the good news was that Jesus Christ could. And that Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law of God. And now we have redemption through them. Through Jesus Christ. And as you learn about who God is, you learn about who you are, and learn about how you relate to others, and how you relate to Him, you begin to worship Him more, and it creates a joy in you. And this is what they were experiencing. Jeremiah, one of the prophets before them in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, he said, when I discovered your words, look at what he says, I devoured them. Do you devour the word of God? Wow. When I was studying for for this, I was reading it, I was like, man, that, that alone can be convicting. Jeremiah says, I devoured your word. He says, they're, they're, they are my joy and my heart's delight. Because the more I get into your word, the more I realize I have the opportunity to bear your name, the great God of heaven's armies. The prophet Isaiah, he had this understanding. Isaiah 61, he says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. For he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation. This is before Christ. But he's having this understanding. Why? How can he have this kind of understanding before Christ? Because he, he like Jeremiah, devoured the word of God. He said, I, I'm dressed with the clothing of salvation and you've draped me in a robe of righteousness. I'm like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels on her wedding day. He's overwhelmed with joy. David, two different times we see in scripture that David was confronted about sin in his life. You, and, and we talked about it last week. And so David was confronted with the word of God from the prophets of God. One of those issues was, uh, it's in First Chronicles 21, I think it is, it, David was had pride about his army. And so the prophet Gad came and convicted him about it. Or, or, or he spoke the word of God and David was convicted over it. And then David wrote this prayer that we see in Psalm 30, verse 11, when that happened. He said, you've turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You've taken away my clothes of mourning and you've clothed me with joy. And why? So he's saying, I've been convicted. I realize I've done wrong, but I'm not going to stay weeping over the wrong that I've done. I'm going to receive the salvation of God. I'm going to let you clothe me with joy. And I'm going to walk out of here celebrating and I'm going to sing your praises and not be silent. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he put her husband, she got pregnant, he put her husband on the front line to, so that he would ensure that he would be killed in battle so that he would hopefully be able to make it look like the child was his after all. David was confronted by the word of God through the prophet of God, Nathan. And when David was convicted. He wrote one of the most powerful prayers in Psalm chapter 51. I want to look at several verses here real quick. Look at the power of these words. Give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Let me rejoice. There is a moment where we're broken when we see our nature. We see what's, what, what, we're letting, what we're letting happen. 
but let me get in, let me walk in joy. He says, don't keep looking at my sin, remove the stain of my guilt. And then he says, create in me a clean heart of God, renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your joy, your Holy spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Just like Isaiah was saying, and make me willing to obey you. I want, I want to change my life. I want to follow your word is what he's saying. Then I'll teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood. Forgive me for what I did to Bathsheba's husband, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. In other words, I don't want to be silent about the joy that you're restoring to me. You don't desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want to burn off one. We've talked about that several times last week. But look at the sacrifice he says you do desire. The sacrifice you do desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart of God. God wants us to see his word. Let his word reveal things to us that need to be changed. Be broken, but don't stay in that broken place. Begin to experience the joy he wants to bring to you through that change and through that experience. See, we get to experience this, like I said, not not from the place of Jeremiah, not from the place of Isaiah, not from David, not from Ezra, not from Nehemiah, not from what the people experience. We get to experience it on the other side of the cross. When we see what Jesus did for us, and Paul defined it very simply what Jesus did for us. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin, that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's why he came. That's why Jesus came. Yes, we will see things and we'll be convicted by them. But the more we're convicted, the more we see our need to change, the more we begin to realize the truth of what God has done for us and what Jesus did for us through the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus took our place. He took our condemnation so that we could have salvation. He took death so that we could have life eternal with him. He took separation from God so that we can have reconciliation with God and the father. He took the wrath of God so that we could experience the grace of God. He took the misery of sin, the pain, the penalty, and everything that came with it so that we, so that you, and so that me, and so that all of us could experience the joy of life with Christ. He took your place. So you get convicted every now and then. That's a good thing because God's speaking to you and he wants to help you change your life. The word of God brings conviction, but it brings conviction to bring change. And with that change comes celebration in the presence of God. Joy doesn't come from the stuff of the world. Joy comes from our strength in the Lord, which comes more and more. The more we get into his word, the more we seek him, the more we worship him, the more his joy grows. John said this about Jesus. Very first chapter, he said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ was the word. In other words, everything that was written, everything that was done, everything that happened in that old covenant, it was all about Jesus. 
and then Jesus began to teach and Jesus began to walk these disciples and, uh, through life and mold them and teach them and show them the truth of his word. And he gathered them together one day and he told them, he said, guys, listen to me. Listen to me. If you remain in me, in my words and what I've taught you and what I've shown you, if you just abide in that, if you stay in that, if you continue to hunger for that, then you are going to produce a lot of fruit. There's going to be some pruning that has to take place, but you're going to produce. And look at what he tells them is going to happen through his words. John 15, verse 11. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with what? Joy. And your joy will overflow. You might grieve for a moment because you see who you are without Christ. walk in Christ, you'll start rejoicing when you realize all that he's done for you. You have an opportunity not just to walk in that joy, but to carry that joy and to spread that joy everywhere you go. Stand with me this morning. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We're just going to sing that as we close this morning. And I pray today that if you need to experience the joy of God today, that his joy would just begin to overwhelm you in this moment as you worship him. If you've never received Christ as your savior, if you've never expressed the need to him to say, God, I need you to forgive me. I realize today I am a sinner. And without you, there is no life eternal. And if you need that today, I beg you, to confess to God who you are without him. Ask him to forgive you. To to express that you want to begin to journey and follow him and live this life. Don't keep it to yourself. Tell somebody. But take this moment to make that expression in your heart and through your prayer and in this time of worship. But as we worship him, just begin to seek him and ask God to just fill you with the joy of the Lord that is your strength. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccanbin.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.